0: Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard. That was Mark Farner, front frontman of Grand Funk Railroad there. We've never and always from. his new from Chile. We've loved DVD. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome Mark today on the Strange Brew Podcast. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, brother. How you doing? Brilliant. Well, um, obviously, you've got a fantastic new DVD out from Chile. We've loved. As well as some of the live material, you've got some new recordings on there, including "Never and Always." Can you tell me about some of that new material on that DVD package?
1: Yes, it's uh, it's stuff that has been written over the last two or three years, and being that uh, you know we had this opportunity to do the DVD, our promoter down in in Santiago, Carlos Pastine. His good friend, uh, Carlos Toro, owns uh, Abismo Films and pitched him on, on getting us to allow them to record this eight-camera shoot for the DVD. And, and he said the magic words said he'd make us a good deal, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so we like the good deals. As a result, that gave us a vehicle by which we could release some of this pent-up, music that we've been setting on so far what people the feedback that we've got what people have had to say they really enjoy the new stuff so this is it
0: it's a great way of of showing that not only you're there in terms of a live form playing many of the the tracks that over 50 years people know and love but actually you're still writing and recording new music which is an important important thing as an artist
1: yes absolutely it is for me as an artist brother yeah it's use it or lose it
0: (laughs) and uh, i think some of the proceeds from the dvd are are going to the veteran support as well
1: yes three dollars from each dvd that sells for 14.99 that's a deal in itself for 16 live performance tracks two bonus videos and five bonus songs such a deal (laughs) but three dollars From each DVD sale goes to Veterans Support Foundation, and Veterans Support Foundation is a group of veterans that volunteer their service to other veterans. These guys, I've been working with them for many, many years, and it's all about the love. And Keith King, who runs the organization, who headed it up, all the people that he got together, have big hearts and they are successful at helping our veterans. They come home that, uh, otherwise, uh, get neglected. You know, that some come home with no arms, no legs. Uh, it's terrible that they would be neglected and that they wouldn't have the service that they need. And also for the brothers and sisters who come home and they, they're expecting to get that check and it's not there. Well, Veterans Support Foundation will advocate so that that person does receive what they are legally due by law for the service they have given to their country. So this is why we back Veterans Support Foundation. And we thank everybody that purchases a DVD for helping us to support our brothers and sisters because we love them.
0: Yeah. We must talk about the live tracks as well, which are great. And the show opens with Are You Ready? Which I think actually was the first track off the first Grand Funk album as well. And and it's just the perfect way to to open a show as well. It's a track that still connects with uh, fans today and it it comes across on the DVD.
1: Yes. And it is uh, appropriate since it was the first track, as you mentioned, Jason. And people love to sing it. Especially our brothers and sisters in Chile. In Santiago, <laughs> you can tell by listening to this DVD that the people are up. They are geeked for this performance. And every time I go back to the theater, Teatro Caupalecan in Santiago, I have the same reaction, and people love it. It's a great place. I think that has a lot to do where the overall you know performance is how it sounds it's it's around theater so no matter where you are you're you're close to the people you can see the faces even the ones in the balcony and you can see the signs they're holding up the love signs and the cards and all of the beautiful things they have to say and it's uh, it really comes out in the grooves as they say on this DVD uh, especially in are you ready? Yeah. The kickoff. Yeah. And I think Heartbreaker really shines the people too. They they love that song. And people told me, Jason, that they learned how to speak English so they could understand the words wow. to Heartbreaker. So it crosses the language barrier. Music has an ability to touch hearts <laughs> and then... Uh, You know, and for me to be able to hear this coming from the fans, I'll tell you, there's there's nothing more humbling for me than to have that kind of love. And and I
0: take good, precious care of it. (laughs) Absolutely. And um, in terms of Heartbreaker itself, that was was that the first track that you ever ever wrote? Does it go that way back?
1: Yes, that was the first song I'd I'd ever written. Uh, Dick Wagner, who was a guitar player for Alice Cooper for Ursa Majors, uh, for the Frost in Michigan. Uh, you know, they were a show band, the Bossman. I was with them for about a year. And Dick had me st- on stage with them doing like rhythm guitar and singing backup because uh, our voices blended well together. Yeah. And one night after the gig, we played in the, at the Lakeland Castle, uh, upstate Michigan, and we drove back to his apartment in Saginaw, Michigan, and it was yeah two or three o'clock in the morning when we got there. So we stayed up and were playing our electric guitars unplugged. His wife and kids are in the other room sleeping, so we had to keep the noise down. And he's showing me some chord inversions mm-hmm. and different things. And I just said to him, Dick, how do you write all these songs? You have written so many songs, dude. He looks at me, and he looked me in the eye, Jason, and he says, you can write music. I said, I can? It's like he, I don't know, he turned a switch on with his words. He says, it's inside of you, Mark. It's inside of you, just like it's inside of me, it's in you. He says, all you got to do is let it come out. So he went to bed. I stayed up, and I wrote Heartbreaker. That was my first song I ever wrote. Wow. But uh, he was right. It's inside of you. You got to search your heart.
0: And what a benchmark to set as your first song as well. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Don't cry no more
0: I wanted to touch on Terry Knight and The Pack, which is one of the bands that you were in that eventually kind of evolved into a Grand Funk Railroad. And you had some hits in that time with tracks like Better Man Th- than I, didn't you? So you, you, you had quite a, a following in that band before Grand Funk.
1: Yes, I played bass in Terry Knight and The Pack and uh, it was fun. You know, I was—I I'd never played bass before, but uh, they called me and said, listen. Our bass player got drafted, you know. it was during the Vietnam era, and they said, we need a bass player that sings. Can you play bass? I said, well, I, I bet I can. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I had the confidence. But when I joined them, it was a little bit awkward because Don Brewer and myself were singing the backgrounds to Terry's, to his songs, to presentation. We did I Who Have Nothing, and as you mentioned, uh, Better Man Than I. And well, there was quite a few of the Terry Knight songs that were local uh, regional hits and, around Flint and Detroit. Yeah. But uh, after a while, Don and I said, Terry is a good front man because he's got a gift of gab, but he can't sing worth a shit. <laughs> we need to get rid of him out of this band and form a band of rock and roll singing and do our own stuff and that's how uh the split came to happen and uh we became the pack well we were the pack before terry knight in the pack that was our right that was our group name so we went back to the pack and terry started a terry knight review with horns and background singers and all this it fell on its face he's a good front man but he couldn't he really couldn't sing that well so my involvement as a bass player, it was part of my fifth grade. When I started playing music in school, it was part of my uh, upbringing because I started playing tuba, a sousaphone, you know, the big... Wow. Yeah, and that and was in the marching band. And because I was a small stature guy, that was back in the days when the horns are made of brass and that sucker was heavy, dude. And I was, <laughs> I was listing a little to the left after you know marching up and down the field. <laughs> but I looked over, and none of the girls were watching the marching band. They all had their eyes on those football players, dude. <laughs> so I got out of band and got into playing sports. Uh, got injured playing sports, and that's how I came to play guitar because my mother. Uh, she felt so sorry for me because I love to hear my name being called over the loudspeaker. That was Farner number 66 in on the tackle. Hmm. I was defensive linebacker over center and uh, kind of like the roving reporter. And I was fast enough to get to about every play and I loved it, you know, uh, but when that was taken from me, I was down in the dumps, man. I had a frown that wouldn't go away. And then my mother got me six lessons uh, on guitar for my 15th birthday. And I took three of them and the guitar teacher had an accident. I couldn't uh, finish my lessons. So he told my mother to have me go watch the guys in the high school that had a band and, and I would learn from them because I was watching him and picking up I don't know how to read music per se, no notes, but it's in my, it's in me. It's part of who I am. It's part of what I came up with and what I hung on to. But the, with Terry Knight in the pack, we would go out and we, yeah. would, we would be unfulfilled that the band would, <clears throat> because we had this other potential that was in us, and we were going, dang, it's we got to find a way to, you know, make this happen.
2: Can you judge a man by the way he wears his hair? Can you read his mind by the clothes that he wears? Or can you see a bad man by the tack on his tie? Well then, Mister, you're you're a better man man than I. I. Mister, you're a Is more important than the stories that he tells and call a man a fool if for wealth he doesn't strive will then mystery the of country he must die
1: Terry night, it began to happen for us. And I was writing songs. And uh, when we went down to play the Atlanta Pop Festival, that was our first gig as Grand Funk Railroad. It was somebody turned the lights on. And this this garage band from Flint, Michigan, opened a show for 180,000 people that were there not all from the Atlanta, Georgia area. From all over the United States and Canada, a lot of people there. Yeah. And the word went out and spread fast. And we did a lot of festivals back then. We did uh, in Montreal. Uh, we did Strawberry Fields, and in uh, in Texas, we did the Texas International. In Oklahoma, big festivals, and that's what got us started. We had massive exposure to all these people, and we had the energy that they liked. So, uh, you know, it evolved to what eventually, you know, became the three-piece band that took the world by storm.
0: Yeah, it's like you had a grounding in the blues and rock, but were unique and and basically took it to its next level and and really defined your own sound.
1: Yes, uh, it was more of the R&B that we were listening to, CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, Rosalie would be playing all this R&B and Motown music. And it was the stuff that we liked to dance to. And I'm a dancer. My mother uh, showed my older sister and I how to dance together. and, And we'd go to dance contests around Flint, Michigan and win because we were the only two that were dancing together, really, that knew how to do it together. And so that's part of, you know, the show today is I move. I, I, I love to dance. It's part of, you know, what makes us uh, successful to a live crowd. Yeah.
0: The sound of the band continued to evolve and develop. And it, it seemed that you, your confidence as artists just seemed to grow. So I think by the third album, tracks like Sin's A Good Man's Brother, again, you continue to just keep developing and just keep taking it to that next level again. Do you remember how such a great track as that was created?
1: Yes. uh, As a matter of fact, Stevie Marriott was, uh, coming, they were coming to the U S he told me when we did a tour over, uh, European tour in 70, he told me that he had a guitar that I should own. And it was, uh, what he called a TV model, they made them for TV television, and it was a white finish, but it was a double cutaway SG. It had the headstock busted off, and they epoxy glued it back together, <laughs> not quite the way it was, but it it worked. And he sold me that guitar for two hundred dollars, Jason. <laughs> it was great. I wrote. Sins a good man's brother, and all the the E Pluribus Funk album was written on that SG, and I played that SG on all those songs, and it made it a unique uh, sounding disc. Yeah. But on stage, I couldn't, you know, switch back and forth. I I had my favorite, which was my Messenger. You know, I'd play the songs on that, and I still today I have a Parker Fly because I had an operation. Where they fused two vertebrae in my neck, C six and C seven, and the doctor told me no more heavy guitars. He says no more Stratocasters, no more Telecasters, no more Les Pauls, no more Les Paul Juniors. <laughs> and I'm going, oh man, you are killing me, dude. You are killing me. Uh, so, but but when I was in uh, Japan with Ringo in '95, I had gone to the Korg Corporation to the factory and. They had, uh, you know, I've been endorsing Korg for years, so I wanted to see what was new on the, yeah. you know, in the equipment and I'm plugging into some of their stomp boxes and some of the echo and the things that they had. And the guy asked me, have you seen the Parker flies? And I had never even heard of a Parker fly. I didn't know what a Parker fly yeah. was. I didn't know it was a guitar. I thought he was talking about a stomp box, but he reaches around the corner in the other room and he pulls this guitar from a stand and he hands it to me. He says, this is a Parker fly. I take it. Like my hand goes up in the air. I'm like, Holy crap. What (laughs) is this? It only weighed four pounds. This guitar, man, it was incredible. So when this doctor tells me after the operation in 96, that I had to not put anything more than five pounds around my neck, I went, Oh, I better call Parker. So I call Ken Parker and at that time, Ken Parker and Larry Fishman, uh, were partners and they were putting out these Parker guitars. They put out 30,000 really fine instruments in 10 years. And then it switched hands. It went to, I think they sold out to U S music. Uh, and then that got handed down to somebody, but the craftsmanship was there in the beginning. It is no longer there in the latter year. Parker flies and night flies, but, uh, they sent they sent me my Parker Fly. Uh, I had my first one was a hard tail that they made me, and I loved it. I mean, I I still that's the one I prefer on stage today. They made me another one from mahogany, but they are lightweight. Even being made from mahogany, they're five pounds. There's no more than five pounds around my neck, except when I put the little strap that has the radio. That you know that sends the signal to the amplifier, adds about a pound. But uh, I'm glad that I got the Parker and that I can still rock and run around the stage and it's not
0: killing me. take you back a little bit further down the Grand Funk Railroad story and and a a real big period of commercial success and a collaboration with Todd Rundgren and obviously known for so many great records including yours that he's produced but was it a a conscious decision to go out and get Todd or was it a, a record company decision well the way we would do it in
1: all fairness was we had several names we'd write them on a piece of paper put them in a hat, and uh, shake it up, and I reach up in there and pull a name. That's how Todd got pulled. <laughs> but he his name got written on there because Lynn Goldsmith, who was uh, our publicist, of course, but she was more like co-manager. Her contribution in the artwork and the formation of the band is instrumental in our success. She came up with all those great, album ideas with the, the, uh, 3d glasses, you know, on all the girls yeah. and, uh, shining on an American band being printed on a, uh, a yellow vinyl. The ad that went out for it is we're shipping it gold. So <laughs> people may have thought that it was already, it had that many sales pre-sales, but it really was, it was gold colored. <laughs> And 100,000 of the millions that were sold were the uh, yellow vinyl. So the formation of this band and the success of the band, not only did it come from uh, the management, but there's a lot of women that don't get credit in this world. And a man will step right up there and steal it from them in a heartbeat because men have these huge freaking egos that have to be satisfied. (laughs) But I just want to mention that Lynn Goldsmith, what a talent. And uh, her part in making us uh, successful was uh, you can't enumerate it.
0: Just talking about credit, I just wanted to correct something for the listeners. I'm not sure you got the credit in terms of your involvement in terms of shaping or writing. We're an American band, didn't you? Because you were involved with that track, but it's not been sort of wholly acknowledged.
1: Yeah. After we recorded this song, Don Brewer came to me because he had written the lyrics, and he said, you know, Mark, I've never had 100% right credit on any song. Do you mind if I take it on this one? I Immediately I said, no, go ahead, Don, because I'm a nice guy. And I am. I intend that is my my heart's desire to, to leave people with the idea that I'm the nicest guy they ever met. I want to be that guy. And even though I've been screwed 11 dozen times because of that vulnerability, Mm -hmm. it's not going to change who I am. I will not allow it. It just exposes uh, the ugliness of the hearts of people who take advantage of folks in that way. In American Band, when... Brewer brought in the words. I could hear my guitar. I could hear the guitar part. I could hear the bass part. And I told Don, I said, this song has to have a cowbell to start the song. And he says, well, I don't have a cowbell. I says, well, you're going to have to get a cowbell because, dude, this song is screaming for a cowbell. And he says, okay, I'll pick one up on the way to rehearsal tomorrow. I said, no, pick up six of them. And Mm -hmm. we will pick out the one that matches in tone to the track, the one that tunes up the best with that track. And and we did. And I told Don, I said, I can hear this drum beat, but it takes you smacking and pumping that bass. And he says, man, I can't do that. I said, you can't do that that word should not be in your language, man. Can't doesn't exist. You can do it. You just have to push yourself a little harder and you can do it. And the next day he was playing the lick, that intro lick. And I showed him how to play that. But I wrote all of those chord changes. I wrote the background vocals, how the one, the higher vocal does the trill and goes through the parts to make the song escalate. We're try- always having the dynamic of building the song, taking it low so that we can get high again on, on the outro. And uh, I did play a large part in writing that song. And thank you, Jason, for bringing that up so that your listeners will know for sure that I did have a lot to do with that uh, as I did with the uh, most of the songs whether it was co-written you know, by Don and I, and any song that was co-written by Don and I, he always did the lyrics, I always did the music. I didn't change any of his lyrics, because I think that's, uh, you know, unless we were writing together and decided yeah. certain things, but he always wrote the lyrics on his own, I always wrote the music on my own, and that's the way it functioned.
0: Wanted to get more up to date and, and ask you about your involvement with Alice Cooper and um, his Detroit Stories album, and such a great range of people, including yourselves, all over that album, and great tracks like Sister Ann, which is an MC5 track, paying homage to to not only Alice's roots but your roots as well, in a way.
1: Absolutely, yeah, the Detroit punk music, you know, Susie Quattro and East Side Story, Bob Seger when I heard about this and my manager had talked and, and um, relayed the message said, you know, Alice is doing this record uh, of Detroit stories and he wants you to be involved, said, there's going to be Wayne Kramer and Johnny B. And I went, Whoa, 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 count me in. Are you kidding me? Put my name on the list. And uh, you know, I, I was talking with Bob Ezrin and talked with Alice on the phone, and then when we finally got in the studio together, the magic was fixing to happen, you know. And mm-hmm. I had played uh, music with Johnny Badangic, you know, for a couple of years mm-hmm. in my own uh, solo band, Mark Farner's solo band, a three-piece band with uh, Mark Gujon and 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 Johnny B. And then uh, seeing Wayne mm-hmm. Kramer again. I had never really sat and talked to him. I had only admired him from afar. And I remember the first time here in MC5, we were playing uh, the Michigan State Fair in Detroit. And there was uh, MC5 and Iggy Pop. There was the Rationals, the Amboy Dukes, hmm. all of these bands from from the era. And when MC5 Took the stage. It would. It was like kick out the jams. Every head within a half mile turned towards that stage, (laughs) and and the energy poured out. I love them guys, and I got to tell Wayne Kramer face to face how much I love his style, and I love the music that came from those guys. And then to record with Alice, what a great guy he is. A humble Christian man he is, and he's so humble. I I just couldn't get over. We'd go into a restaurant, Jason, and we're eating. You know, when Alice comes in, everybody recognizes Alice Cooper because he's the same on and off. They would come over. People from the kitchen would have something for him to sign. They're walking over there. He's eating. He would have his fork halfway between his plate and his mouth and somebody walk up. And say, can you sign it? He put the fork down, dude, and signed their album. <laughs> what a humble guy. And, and Bob Ezrin, you know, what a great producer. Yeah. He's an intense, intense man. I heard a lot about him when Dick Wagner was producing my first solo record. He was telling me about Bob Ezrin and what his style and, and what he had learned from from working with Bob Ezrin. So I had really anticipated meeting him, but then after working with him and seeing his style and feeling his energy, he can get very stern, but it's all because of how much he thinks of this track. And if it's suffering in any way, he's going to straighten that shit out. He, He is an intense man. And I loved working with him and the, the bass player that was on that session, Paul Randolph, who is a local Detroit boy, he is now in Mark Farner's American band. As a result of that very session, and you know, he already sold me on his bass playing, but when we went out into the studio and got on microphone and started doing the background vocals for these tracks, brother, I'm looking up at him. He's like, you know, six three, six four, something up there. And I'm hearing this really high voice. And I'm down here at 5'7", dude. And I'm looking up there going, how in the hell is that high voice coming out of that big guy like that? But it's his heart and his, it's his makeup. It's his upbringing. He's got a good mama. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, Gene raised him right. And he's now in Mark Feiner's American Band. We're proud of that. And we are, uh, you know, a better band because of it.
0: final live track off the DVD, and that's a really, really special track, I'm Your Captain, Closer to Home. What was the spark of inspiration for, for that song?
1: Well, I went to bed one night, and I always say my prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep. This is what my mother taught us six kids, and I put a PS on the end of my prayer, and I asked God, I said, please give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those you wanna get to. And I awoke, well, halfway awoke, about three o'clock, 3 a.m. I sat up, I always keep a legal pad next to my bed with a pen so that I can jot down whatever's on my mind because so many times prior to parking a pad there, I would think of things and I'd say, uh, I'll write it down in the morning. And then when the morning came, it was gone. And I kicked myself in the ass so many times yeah, because some great things got past me, but not anymore. I started writing things down and my state of consciousness was halfway between heaven and earth. I was suspended in there and I'm writing these words, kind of groggy. And I I didn't want to go back and read any words. I wanted them to just come as they were coming. And I wrote that whole song that way. But I didn't know it was a song because I I do this a lot. I wake up and write things a lot. They're not necessarily songs. In fact, most of it is not songs. It's just things that Hmm. need to be heard. And so anyways... I get up in the morning, go out and have my coffee made. I'm looking at my horses out in the pasture and I got a a George Washburn acoustic guitar sitting there in the guitar stand. So I pick it up and I'm tuning it up and then I just go that, that opening lick. I went, wow, that's kind of cool, and, and I grabbed a, this inversion of a C chord that I'd never made before, but it was chiming. It was speaking to me, just the harmonics coming from the string. It was just beautiful to me, and I'm looking, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't forget this, man. I got to memorize this chord. I'm looking at it, and, and it just manifests at that point. Maybe those words in the other room are a song, so I run mm. in, I grabbed those lyrics, put them on the kitchen table, and I started singing and strumming with the the music. And it just all came together right there. And I took it to rehearsal that day, and both Don and Mel said, man, Farner, that song's a hit, dude. And uh, they were right. But I think it was my prayers. I think God gave me that song. There was no video to the song, so it is up to the listener, to their imagination, to run that movie, to run that video in their head. And I think it's going to be the same results as my friend who works at WNEW in New York City. They polled their audience, and they had 100 people write the definition of what the song Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel, what was the definition of the song? He told me, he said, Mark, we got a hundred diversely different explanations. There weren't any two that were even similar. And he says, that is what your brain is used for. That's what the imagination is supposed to be used for. And I liken it to someone who reads a book and then they go see the movie. They go, "Ah, that movie sucked, man. The book was a lot better. It's because our imagination is so much better than what the video depiction of the song could ever be. I think that's what's missing in music today, brother, that that since the advent of all the music videos, the song has one definition and it's that freaking video. And we need to have our imaginations uh, stimulated so that we can evolve. It's like somebody's trying to oppress us by controlling our music, what we listen to. There's an accumulative weight factor that keeps adding up and pushing down on us but it's up to us to set ourselves free from that. We are the only ones who can emancipate ourselves from that bullshit. We are greater than what they're trying to tell us what we are or what they're allowing us to be. We are greater people and we could be a greater world united by love if it weren't for those in the high positions who try to oppress us and weight us down
0: you know a a great way to to finish mark all the best with the release of um, from chili we've loved and and also are you able to make plans for for live dates at, at the minute given hopefully things are getting better
1: yes last weekend we played our first gig in over a year and a half and we played in ohio near dayton It's it's in a town called greenville and we played uh, BMI Center, and the, and it was limited uh, capacity, but we had three hundred and fifty people in a two thousand seat auditorium, and it was like the place was full. Yeah, there was so much enthusiasm. People need this. We we need to go to live concerts. We need this kind of community stimulated it's it's who we are this coming weekend we are with blue oyster cult in st augustine florida yeah and that's going to be a great show cuz every time we're with buck and eric you know we're friends we're booked out of tko in los angeles which you know it's the same agency and whenever we can get booked together i say yeah put us with Blue Oyster Cult. Those are our buddies. And uh, it's always a good show, man. It's always a good show. I, I love their music. I love Buck Dharma, man. I, I, he's a great player and singer.
0: What a pleasure it's been to talk to you, Mark. And what a pleasure it is to get a bit of a taster from Chili with Love. And um, it's even better to hear that some live shows are coming up and uh, here's to more and uh, spreading the love.
1: Yeah, man. I appreciate it so much, Brother Jason. God bre- bless you. And thank you for having me on your podcast today.
0: No, no, back at you. Thanks a lot and take care.
1: You too, brother. If I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture.
0: (laughs) See you later. (laughs) Bye-bye.
1: See you, brother Jason.